0: We'll be right <laughs> Happy History Hump Day to all of you queer history lovers out there. I am as always your host, Julian Rushbrook, out here offering a bit of light into the shadows wherein our LGBTQIA history and stories have been unceremoniously stashed. Well, we have another fascinating trans icon for you to learn about during this trans history month. Last week, we jumped back in time to visit pre- and post-revolutionary France and its surrounding areas. Now, I propose that we turn that dial back even further. In this episode, we will be going all the way back to the 5th century BCE. We're talking about medieval times, and we're going to learn about a trans saint. Now, I know what you might be thinking, especially regarding present attitudes regarding queer folks that are held by many churches and Christians in general. What do you mean a trans saint? How on earth can trans folk be canonized? Do the believers actually know that a trans person is a saint? Well, I can answer that by saying that there are at least a dozen or so saints that either cross-dressed or who would most likely be considered transgender today. Christianity, in all of its various versions, has a long history of having queer people as either prophets, saints, or other kinds of leaders. Just as some Native American and First Nations tribes have two-spirit people, or in Hindu traditions there are holy people who blurred the gender lines, Christianity too has a long tradition of recognizing and uplifting people who exist outside of the binary gender concept. And this is of course assuming that those societies have a binary gender concept, but I'm stepping way too far here. So even if the church has become more homophobic and transphobic in more contemporary times, the history of the church reveals a bit more of a nuanced truth. Trans folk have always been a part of the history of this world, and so it should really come as no surprise that they are to be found in the traditions of one of this planet's largest religions. So for today, I would like to delve into the history of Marinos the monk. Again, he lived in the fifth century, And his is a story that is very touching. While often referred to as Marina and done so with female pronouns, I will use the masculine as he never wavered through the course of his life on how he presented to the world. Now, whether he would identify as trans today is something that we can only truly speculate on. That being said, his life and example is something that even today guides Christian trans folk in their spiritual journeys through life. Marinos was born in the Byzantine Empire in what is today Lebanon. His father, Eugenius, and his mother, Badura, named him Marina and raised him as their daughter. The little child's life would change dramatically when Badura died, leaving Eugenius to care for the young Marinos alone. When Marinos reached adulthood, his father had still not remarried. At this point, the elder man spoke to his beloved and only child saying that he wanted to travel to Canobine and there to enter the monastery, devoting the remainder of his life to the service of Christ. His lifetime of sins would be best cleansed from his soul if he did this. To ensure that Marinos would be taken care of, Eugenius was going to leave all of his lands and possessions to him. It seemed to be a fairly simple plan, but there would be a slight hitch. Would the child now inherit the very life of sin that was blighting his father? Marinos asked his father, do you wish to save your own soul and leave mine to be lost? Do you not know that the Lord says he who saves a soul will be as the one who created it? For all of these years, Eugenius had cared for his only child all in hopes that he would be safe. The only problem is that he had not considered the eternal soul when thinking of safety and prosperity. Now, Marinos was asking to join his father in the monastery, and together they would devote their every thought and breath to the service and exaltation of the divine." I imagine that Eugenius chuckled a little bit at this. His daughter was wanting to join him in a monastery. It was absurd. When he pointed out to Marinos that there was no way that a monastery would allow a woman amongst his ranks, he got a reply that would in many ways change history. Marinos' reply was simple. Father, I will not enter the monastery in the way that you imagine, but will cut my hair and dress myself in men's clothing. This is how I will come with you. Living as a man would save his soul, rather than living as the woman that he was assigned at birth and was, was raised as from birth. From that point, he was no longer, even by his father, referred to as Marina, rather, using the masculine Marinos for the remainder of his life. Eugenius sold all of his worldly possessions and lands that he originally was going to bequeath to his child and donated the profits to charity. And so now it was off to the monastery in the Cadisha Valley and their futures. The changes to his appearance were convincing enough to the monks at the monastery of Our Lady of Kinabine. The monastery is still there in Lebanon and in use, but it's now a nunnery. Both Eugenius and Marinos were able to take up holy orders and were folded seamlessly into the patterns of life that the monks had adopted. His fellow brothers never suspected that Marinos was not as he appeared to be. There is some thought that he might have been viewed as a eunuch as many castrated men would enter into monastic life. There were many conflicts within the church regarding whether castrated men could marry as they would be unable to have children, so such an arrangement gave community and security to these men. It is said that Marinos was quite pious and thrived under the practices of his order. Apparently, the Almighty was also contented with his presence amongst the other monks, as Marinos is said to have had the power to lay his hands upon those suffering from illness and pain, and to miraculously heal them of their maladies. He was much beloved by the other men who lived and worshipped with him. They called him Abba Marinos, or Father Marinos. He and his father led ascetic lives in prayer, work, and fasting. After a decade, the elder Eugenius would die, leaving his child alone with his brothers in Christ. With his father now departed, he did not throw off the men's clothing, nor did he decide to come clean about his sex. Instead, he continued his life as a man of God, living minimally and simply, in the service to Christ. Now, the life of a monk, while often cloistered, is not completely shut off from the outside world. The abbot of the monastery had business that needed to be conducted outside of the four walls that they all dwelt within, far away by the sea. Marinos and three other brothers were selected to travel for the abbot. Along the way, they stopped at a tavern, It was a long journey, and the weary travelers were thankful to find some shelter and a good meal. Now at that tavern were other travelers as well, of course, one of which was a Byzantine soldier. The daughter of the innkeeper was quite beautiful and caught the eye of said soldier. He did what he could to seduce the young woman, and she succumbed, either to his charm or from coercion. It's not totally clear, honestly. Either could be true. Once the soldier had either had sex with or raped the innkeeper's daughter, he made her swear that should she find herself pregnant, to say that rather than the father being himself, to instead blame Father Miranos, the monk. So the soldier was now clear to go on about his duties on the empire's eastern border and not have to concern himself with taking any responsibilities for his actions. After all, the monk would handle it. Who cares about some monk anyhow? A short amount of time passed before it became clear that she was indeed pregnant. As she had been told, when asked about her condition from her father, who was doubtlessly distraught that his daughter's virginity had been taken while leaving her unmarried and with child, he was given the story that she had been instructed to repeat. The father of this baby was Abba Marinus. It should come as not a surprise at all that the innkeeper was on the warpath after hearing that, he, like most people from this period, trusted monks and nuns to stay true to their vow of celibacy. It was clear that this monk was a deceiver, a wolf in the clothing of a sheep who easily manipulated the trust of his daughter. The man traveled now to the monastery and demanded to speak with the abbot. The abbot in turn tried to calm the disgraced father. He empathized with the man, but was not about to just take the word of this man's daughter, who may have, in a panic, pointed the finger to a monk she had seen once, rather than implicating another man whom she might be trying to protect. Marinos was called now to speak with the abbot. Upon hearing the story, Marinos knew the truth of the matter, but instead fell upon his knees. Through tears, he begged from his his superior for forgiveness of his sins and wicked doings. After all, he had sinned as all men do. It was perhaps less of an admission instead of being more of a recognition of his manhood. The abbot was horrified. The innkeeper's daughter's story seemed to check out. One of his own had defiled her virginity and left her and an unborn child to fend for themselves in a cruel world. He could have none of that. In a rage, the abbot expelled Marinos from the monastery. He had nowhere to go, so he remained outside the walls of the home he was now banished from, and survived by begging. When the innkeeper's daughter gave birth to a baby boy, the innkeeper brought the infant up to the monastery. Upon seeing the begging Marinos just outside the gates, he placed the child in his arms, telling him that the baby was his responsibility now, and then turned back to his home. Marinos now found his troubles doubled. Not only had he needed to beg for food, but he also had to feed another mouth besides his own. Now, there are two different stories that tell how he was able to feed this baby. One of them says that he was able to turn to some shepherds and get milk from some sheep or cows. The other tells that he was able to miraculously produce milk from his own breasts to feed the baby. Now, if we look at biology, it makes sense that someone who was born female would produce milk but nonetheless the church considers it a miracle. For ten years he and the child lived outside of the protective walls of the monastery begging for any food they could. The child grew and was raised by his adopted father. The monks who were in the monastery were not unaware of the condition of these two who lived in the shadow of their walls. They finally felt that his penance was fulfilled and invited both to return to the life of a monk. That being said, Marinos was not going to have everything the way it had been a decade before. Not only would he have the responsibility of raising his son to adulthood and the spiritual duties that were requisite for monastic life. But he would also have to endure more demanding and demeaning labor, from cooking and cleaning to carrying water and other tasks that were now solely his responsibility. It was still more penance that the abbot and the other monks thought that this man would have to pay after his fall from grace. Marinos took on all of the extra duties, no matter how foul or demeaning, and did not complain about his lot in life. It did take a toll, however, to be the hardest worker there. After nearly a decade, at the age of 40, he would fall ill. After just a few days of this illness, his brethren noticed that he had missed the communal services, so they decided to check on the man who had been under the weather. They found him dead in his chamber, and they all came together to take care of their brother. They went to clean his body and provide it with fresh robes to be buried in, but rapidly discovered Marinos' secret. Their brother in Christ had all along been female, The abbot, upon learning the truth, was devastated. It became crystal clear to him that Marinos had taken on the responsibility of parenting a child that was not his own, knowing that he would, despite all the hardships, provide better love and community for the child than his mother could have. With the stigma around unwed motherhood and of fatherless children, it was a difficult decision for the young mother to make but giving her child a fresh start in the welcoming arms of a monastery would be far better than the community scorn that awaited him. That welcoming community of the monastery had turned out to be the opposite, as it had exiled a fellow monk who was only trying to do his best to give a life to a child who had no choice in its parentage. Despite the seeming deception that Marinos had in claiming to have been a man for decades, The way in which he had lived his life was far more in line with the teachings of Christ than his own as an abbot had been. The abbot went now to view the body of his brother Marinos and fell upon his knees in a reversal of the roles from ten years prior. Weeping, he called out, I will remain here at his holy feet until I die if I do not receive forgiveness. With this prayer uttered, he heard then a response in the voice of the now departed monk. The voice forgave the abbot for having exiled him. One of the other monks, who was blind, was cured of that blindness upon touching the dead body of his brother. The story eventually found its way to the innkeeper's daughter, and the community turned their back on her. On top of that, God sent a demon to torment her, Now I understand that she told a lie, but I think it was a bit justified. Was she raped? If so, I'm sure that the same community members would blame her for that. If it had been consensual, but the soldier abandoned her, she would still be blamed. So she got a rotten deal out of it. She would spend the rest of her life in Marinosa's tomb doing penance for the story that had at first cleared her name and now cursed it. Everyone saw the monk as a saint now. His powers to heal the sick, as well as his intuition that, at least for a time, had saved the lives of two innocents, the innkeeper's daughter and her son, as well as the communication from beyond the veil, were all miracles that could not be ignored. The Coptic Church, Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Episcopal churches, among others, venerate Marinos as a saint. It's even claimed that his body lies in the St. Mary Coptic Church of Harat al-Rum in Cairo, Egypt. The corpse is one of the incorruptibles, a body or other relic that either does not decay or does so extremely slowly. This is a sign that the deceased has been particularly holy. The Catholic Church claims that his body parts are in churches in Venice and Paris. In the end, we may never really know who, if anyone, has the actual body of the saint. For contemporary trans people, it should come as no surprise that Marinos would be an unofficial patron saint for them. Likewise, he's seen as a patron saint for those adopting children as he did with the son of the innkeeper's daughter. His life can be seen as an allegory of other queer stories. His soul would only be saved when he lived his truth, and was accepted by his community as that truth. When he was exiled, he still stayed true to his ideals, showing love and support for his community, despite the unwarranted expulsion. I think many of us show up every day being our best selves, all despite often being excluded in some capacity from the very social fabric that we help maintain and strengthen. Only later is the work viewed as good and all that effort finally acknowledged and respected. So I hope all of you enjoyed the story of St. Marinos the Monk. It really is an interesting and enlightening tale. And it just goes to show that the idea of these strict and rigid gender binaries has never really been a part of the church's teachings, as Marinos is not the only person who was a trans saint. For Marinos' case in particular, he joined a monastery, and monks and nuns were often seen as being not quite the same gender as maybe they were assigned at birth, since their roles were different. So, in many ways, Marinos was living his truth, as was every monk and every nun, regardless of how they identified. If you all enjoyed the story of an awesome medieval trans monk, then rate this podcast with five stars, which let's be honest, is the only real option that there is. If you want to chat with me, you can send an email off to ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com or come visit our Instagram page at historymostqueer. We have fun pics of all these amazing queer icons and I think you will enjoy putting some faces to these names. I look forward to revisiting your eardrums again next week Until then, enjoy the rest of your week, and keep cool and hydrated. Bye-bye.